Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Okay, so we're in Mark this morning. Good morning, anyone who doesn't know me. My name is Brett. Um, I have the privilege of serving um, in this wonderful church. Um, my wife and I have been here for two years, three years, something like that. I don't know. Anyway, so it's been great. Um, if you are new here um, and I haven't met you, um, that's probably because I'm extremely introverted and I don't do crowds of people. <laughs> but anyway, that's just me. Okay, so we're in Mark chapter 8 this morning, um, verses 22 to 26. Um, however... If I just read that on its own, it doesn't actually make much sense because although we've been breaking down, um, obviously, Mark, you you can't preach the whole book all at the same time, obviously, Um, but this passage is absolutely rooted and grounded in its context. It doesn't make any sense without what comes before it and what happens afterwards. So I'm going to start reading from Mark verse 14. So Dave did verses 14 to 21 last week. Um, I encourage you to podcast that if you want to know um, what that's about, but I'll, I'll be picking pieces out of it for the rest of this morning. Okay, so now the disciples, so verse 14, so now the disciples had forgotten to bring any bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, Beware the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. Who remembers what the yeast of the Pharisees were from last week? What was it? Boom. Judgment of who's in, who's out. And what about the yeast of Herod? Power. Beware of the yeast of who's of judging who's in and who's out. And beware of power, the yeast of power. Verse 16. And they said to one another, it is because we have no is it because we have no bread and becoming aware of it Jesus said to them why are you talking about having no bread pay attention do you still not perceive or understand are your hearts hardened do your do you have eyes and fail to see do you have ears and fail to hear and do you not remember okay Verse 19, when I broke the five loaves um, for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you collect? And they said to him, 12. And the, and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you collect? And they said to him, seven. And then he said to him, pay attention, do you not yet understand? Verse 22, this is ours for today. They came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had put saliva on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, can you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently in, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him away to his home saying, do not even go into the village. Jesus went on with his disciples to the village Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them 
not to tell anyone about him. So about six weeks ago, um, God gave me, before I even knew that I was preaching on this passage, I knew that I was preaching today, but I hadn't actually looked at it yet. And um, God started working on the difference between seeing and understanding, because that's what these verses are about. So I was out the front of my house, minding my own business, mowing my lawn, which I despise doing. Anyone wants to mow my lawn, come over. And um, we live on a pretty quiet cul-de-sac, Marnie and I, with our girls. And there's no throughway. So it's really weird to see people walking down our street because you can't get through at the other end. So you're either here, you're visiting someone, but usually you don't walk there. Um, You're selling something or you're stealing something. That's usually the only reason why you would be on our street. And so me being, um, you know, out the front and mowing lawns and, you know, just doing what it is. Oh, and by the way, Marnie and the girls were away at this stage. I was alone, just me and the dog. And so they left, this was Saturday morning, they left like Tuesday, I think, which I pretty much put my fat pants on and I did nothing for all week. So now I'm sort of picking everything back up again to look like I've been productive. And so... um, so these, these two, and, and, so, and I can see two sets of people coming down the road, and you can peg them pretty clearly far off that they were Jehovah's Witnesses. And so, and it's like, okay, cool, let's see what happens here, because I always like talking to Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, it's like a blood sport. But, um, and so when we, um, so they come and they stand at the end of my driveway, and um, they showed me... Um, you know, like a Bible verse and told me how much Jesus loves me and tried to give me a card and that sort of stuff is what they do. And I'm like, you know, that's, that's great. Like, like, that's cool. I'm happy to have that, that interaction with you. But can I actually ask you a question? And they're like, yeah. And so there was two of them, two ladies. I'll call one smiley and one reserved because that's what they were, okay? So reserved was sort of standing back a bit and smiley was trying to engage. And so... And Smiley's like, "Ah, yeah, and then Smile's drooping a bit. And so I asked her, so just around sort of this sort of line, so with what I read in Scripture, I was wondering if you could explain to me how you get to the conclusion that Jesus is a created being and is not eternal. How do you synthesize your conclusion with what you read in Scripture? Because one of the core beliefs that differs, I mean, there's lots of differences between us and Jehovah's Witnesses, but one of the core beliefs of Jehovah's Witnesses is that they believe that Jesus was created, that he is the most magnified creation. He was the first creation. He was the most glorified creation. However, he was still a creation. And when you start to break that down, that actually has some significant issues theologically for our salvation and that sort of stuff. So... No need to go into that right now because that's not why we're here. And so Smiley was less Smiley yet again um, and Reserved was now probably standing about two or three metres away from me. And so we were having this circular conversation about what that looks like. And they they were like, yeah, 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 but, you know, let's talk about how much Jesus loves us. And I'm like, yeah, that's all fine and well, but actually how about we talk about this? You've come and knocked on my door pretty much. I'd like to talk about what I want to talk about. So anyway, um, we obviously got nowhere um, in the, the minutes that we were talking to each other. And um, they, left, like, they left and pretty much you know, fired a shot over the bow, 
saying, well, maybe if you want to know more about us, maybe you should read the website, their website. To which I replied, well, maybe if you want to know more about Jesus, you should read your Bible. But um, <laughs> so <laughs> I, I finished um, my, um, you know, mowing the lawn and sorting out the house. And something was off internally. I, I felt like something was stirring. And I know that I can be extremely blunt. I like to think I'm forthright, but people think I'm really, really blunt. And so all day, I'm like, what was, what's going on? There's something going on here. And I couldn't, I couldn't pinpoint it. And I went back through the conversation in my head. Was I rude to them? Was I, you know, disrespectful, that sort of stuff? And it's like, no, nah, no, nah, like none of that was happening. I don't think that I was that. Um, but my spirit was still stirred. I go to bed that night and I wake up in the morning and pretty much the first thing is like, boom, like almost a sit-up straight out of bed. And this is what I felt God say to me. Why do you think that you can judge the blind spots in other people's viewpoints when you can't see the blind spots in your own. Oh, snap. Hey? And so God has been taking me through this journey of the difference between what I think I can see and what actually is there. Of what I think I can see and the difference between that and really understanding. And then it turns out three or four weeks later, that I start to look at this Bible verse and realise that that's exactly what this Bible verse is about. So God's been on my case for a while about this now, and I hope that he stirs something in you today. So let's have a look at this, this verse in its context, because on first glance, it doesn't really seem, it seems quite an innocuous thing. We've seen several miracles up until now, you know, and this is just like almost... Like and just it's just another one. However, there's some pretty significant things that are going on both before and after this Bible verse. So there's a couple of them. So this Bible verse ends the third large section in the first half. So the first half from chapter one to chapter eight, there are three sort of large sections. And each one ends with Jesus being rejected in some way. So the first section, which is chapter 1, verse 4, to chapter 3, verse 6, Jesus is rejected by the authorities. And it marks almost the end of Jesus' conflict with authority, with the authorities of the day. He still has interaction with them, but he doesn't necessarily have direct conflict with them anymore. The second section is chapter 3, uh, verse 7, through to chapter 6, verse 6, the first half of chapter, uh, verse 6 in chapter 6 where Jesus is rejected in his hometown. And this marks the end of the section that deals with the distinction between insiders and outsiders, who's in, who's out, who understands, who doesn't. And the third section, where we're just up to now, is chapter 6, verse 6, the second part of, of, of verse 6, up to chapter 8, verse 21, which is just before this section that we're in, which is pretty much the rejection of the disciples, that Jesus is rejected by the disciples. And it picks up the theme of the disciples' hardness of heart, their misunderstanding consistently of who Jesus is. The second important context of where this passage is, is that this is the end 
of the second feeding cycle. So we've had the feeding of the 5,000, we've had the feeding of the 4,000. Both feeding cycles, they parallel each other. There's the feeding of the multitude, there's the confrontation with the Pharisees, there's the healing of the sick. The feeding of the 5,000 cycle finishes with the people's confession that Jesus is the Christ or Messiah. And the feeding of the 4,000 actually finishes not at the end of chapter two, of verse 21 in, in, in chapter 8, but actually in verse 30 of this same one where Peter confesses that Jesus is Messiah. So they're parallel to each other. The third significant position of this gospel is that it stands as the second twin narrative of healing. So the first one is obviously from verse 31 in chapter 7, where Jesus cures a deaf man. And so the similarities are both are brought to Jesus by other people. Both are removed from the crowd. Both times Jesus uses saliva. Both times two touches are needed. And both times Jesus tells the men not to tell anybody. Which, just as a funny aside, is pretty much the most obeyed command that I think Christians follow today. No? <laughs> just saying. Anyway, that's just me. <laughs> Snap. Okay, sorry? Yeah, that's the blunt thing. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, if you, if you feel condemned by that, then maybe. I don't know. Okay, so the first one, so the first um, healing narrative, yet again leads to, the doc, leads to a doxology like a hymn of praise. So that's that uh, chapter 7, verse 37, which is almost a confession of faith. And the second one, at first glance, like I just said, it, leads, it feels like it doesn't really lead anywhere. It just sort of finishes that he tells him, don't go into the village, don't tell anybody about it. Whereas if you actually look, the next unit, which is about Peter's confession, we encounter another question about Jesus' identity and Peter's response. So the fourth um, significance about this passage is that although this finishes a lot in the, in the first half, so in chapter 8, it actually is the start of the next section as well. So this um, is paired with the healing of blind Bartimaeus in chapter 10, verse 46 to 52. And in between these two incidents, so the, the, the blind man here and the blind Bartimaeus, is that Jesus now concentrates almost exclusively on the disciples and preparing them for his coming death. It's a travel narrative. They're moving towards Jerusalem. And after the blind Bartimaeus, they actually enter Jerusalem. The disciples, however, still don't get it. At the end of chapter 10, verse 52, they still know the wise, none the wiser. And even pretty much by the end of chapter 16, they still really don't get it. It's not until after the Easter story that the disciples start to gain full insight into who Jesus really is. Okay. So the, this, is, this verse is about seeing. Now, seeing in this passage, it sort of moves at two different levels. So the first level refers to physical vision. So it obviously demonstrates that Jesus has the power to heal the blind. And his authoritative gesture of restoring sight 
is reminiscent of the salvation oracles in Isaiah. So chapter Isaiah 29, 18, Isaiah 35, verse 5, Isaiah 61, verse 1. So which specify the opening of blind eyes as one of the features of the coming of the deliverance. So we are starting to enter this time of deliverance. This is Mark telling us that Jesus is a part of who we are and who we're being delivered to and from. A couple of questions that I had um, when I first read this. So I generally read through just the verses several times to see what sort of jumps out at me. And two main things jumped out at me. And the first one is when the man um, first can't see properly and he goes I can see people but they look like trees walking and I'm like what on earth does that mean does that have some sort of significance I after I had that question I read several dozen commentaries um, and almost none of them mention anything about it and the ones that do all say that they have absolutely no idea what it's saying and absolutely no idea what it means um, so they, they, they think that it's a, a mix of Greek and Aramaic and they, they don't actually know what the translation really is. So what we have is the best they've got. Um, but most commentators who do mention it just pretty much say that it's a word picture of a dude who can't see. So don't get too bogged up in the significance that it's got some underwriting you know, secret message. Every commentator pretty much says it and we don't know. <laughs> And the second one, the question that I had was, why the two-step miracle? If you look at all of the other passages where Jesus heals someone, like even, um, I don't have this, I'm sorry for the people at the back on, So, but he pretty much says, like when he was healing the deaf man, of be opened, and his ears were opened. So he commands it. Be still. Stand up and walk. He commands the miracle to happen and it does. So he asks a question. Why? Why does he ask this question and why is it a two-stage miracle? It turns out we're going to talk about that for the next 20 or so minutes. Some, uh, a lot of commentators or some commentators have tried to answer that question based on the physical reality of the situation, not necessarily the spiritual reality of the situation. They've tried to say, well, maybe it was a hot day and the sun was out and he was dazzled. Um, Maybe because he'd been living so many years in darkness that being able to finally see, he was shocked. Um, Maybe it's a foreshadowing of the spiritual experience of early Christians that they believe in Christ and then later on have this spiritual um, sort of receiving the spirit and some of that might be true some of it might not I mean the dazzling and the physical shock quite frankly they're talking from a position of silence because the Bible doesn't talk about it so you can't actually argue for that or against but there's no hint here that Jesus is incapable or inept or he has insufficient strength from the outset he from a human perspective he performs more difficult miracles I would suggest that, from a, I mean, if I could make people see, boom, I'd be going around everywhere. Off you go. Like, that's a pretty cool miracle to have. Um, but he raised a girl from the dead, and he's calmed a storm, and he's released a man from a legion of demons. 
So from a, and he's fed 5,000 people, he's fed 4,000 people. So from a size perspective of a miracle, this isn't actually one of his major ones. So why two? Scholars, scholars say that the, in the Jewish thought, a two-stage miracle actually stresses that there's even more power to the healer. Um, and so the two-stage cure suggests that there's a process of revelation that needs to happen here. And if we actually start to look, now I don't have this in my notes, but if we actually start to look at um, the parallel between chat, uh, verse 22 to 26 and 27 to 30, we actually will note that there are, there are parallel stories in structure. They might not look at it at the start, but they actually are. So um, the blind man, they go to a place. He goes to Bethsaida in um, verse 22. And in verse 27, the disciples with Jesus go to Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi. So they go somewhere. There's an initial interaction. Jesus lays or spits and lays his, in, in the man's eyes. And the initial interaction is that Jesus says, well, who do people say that I am? And the response of both is that I can sort of see but not really clearly. So obviously from the blind man's perspective that he can see men walking like trees. From the disciples' perspective, they actually answer, well, others say, you know, John the Baptist and others, Elijah and still others, one of the prophets. So they see something, but they don't see clearly. And then there's a second interaction. And that second interaction is where clarity comes. Ah, says the blind man, I can see clearly now. Ah, the Jesus, the Messiah, I can see clearly now. And then they finish with don't tell anybody. So these passages are parallel to each other. And I'm sure that's not coincidental. So the second level of meaning is the symbolic of, of, here, of seeing. So the disciples also need hearing ears and seeing eyes. And without them, they can't hope to avoid the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. They can't hope to avoid that. And we've seen in the preceding narrative, so from verse 14 to 21... That Jesus raises the issue of blindness and death with the disciples over and over again. He asks, do you still not perceive or understand? Do you have eyes and fails to see? Do you have ears and fail to hear? Do you not remember? Do you not understand? And the disciples continually show themselves to be insensitive to who Jesus is, his person and his work. They don't get it. But it's interesting that these serious indictment of their deafness and blindness are book-ended with him healing a deaf man and healing a blind man. And so it's important to note, though, that the disciples do not represent, for Mark, the deaf and the blind. So the, that role of being deaf and being blind specifically falls with the scribes, with, Pharisee, with the Pharisees and Herod, and with those outside to whom things are in riddles. So we've already established that there are outsiders. The disciples are definitely insiders. Okay? They are those who are called. They are commissioned. They are specially taught. They are an integral part of Jesus' ministry. They are his guys. 
but they continually fail to recognize and grasp his significance. And they almost display a blindness in a lot of cases, like the Pharisees and the scribes and those who are outsiders. And so Jesus causes this blind man in Bethsaida, he first causes him to see and then he causes him to understand. And like I said, there's this question, do you see anything? Which echoes him asking in Mark 8.17 of the disciples, do you still not see? Do you still not understand what's going on here? What is happening that you don't get it yet? Their spiritual vision is clearing, but the message remains opaque and Jesus remains a mystery. The, this, these verses are starting to bring the picture together, the learning together for the disciples. However, they're still pretty stupid. I've got to be honest. So they're forgetful. They're, they're, they just don't get it. But they stand, this, this, this verses are them standing on the threshold of actually understanding something more about Jesus. And they're standing almost between the two touches. The first touch, they sort of see something, but they're not there yet. When Peter makes the declaration, and when Jesus asked them, so this is verse 29, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And we think finally he's got it. He's understanding what is, what's happening. But then in the very next section, in verse, like sort of verse 52. Sorry, no. So from 31 to sort of 35, is that Jesus then rebukes him because he doesn't get it still. So he understands that he's this Messiah, that he's something, that something's going on. But he doesn't understand what it really means. He doesn't get that this messiahship that Jesus is walking, walking towards, because they're walking now towards Jerusalem, that it's going to be one of suffering and of rejection and death, that the messiah is actually a suffering servant. And so they see, but they see still opaquely. They still need that second touch. They're not there yet. So what does that mean for us as readers, as followers of Christ today? The thing is, we know who Jesus is. And you might go, no, we don't. Of course we do. We're told. Chapter 1, verse 1, that he is Jesus, Messiah, Son of God. We know that. We don't have the option of saying that we don't know who he is because we're told that directly right at the start. And each pericope, so each little section, section after section after section, verse after verse, chapter after chapter, up to this point, is evidence, is supporting evidence of that statement. Do we have eyes to see and do we have ears to hear it? That's the difference for us. Because I would suggest that some of us don't. I would suggest that most of us don't. 
So up to this point, we've been led to see Jesus, that he's, you know, his wonder-working power, his authority to forgive sins, what he says, his popularity with the crowds. Those all only represent a partial vision of who he really is. We're told who Jesus is. We hear his words and we see what he does. But do we understand? Or are we like Peter? We're happy to have a Messiah, but we balk at what that actually means and the ramifications for what that means for us as his followers. And part of God's rebuke to me six weeks ago when I was talking to those Jehovah's Witness ladies is that I was happy to have a Messiah and I was happy to sit under his Messiahship, but I had absolutely no idea what that really means. Absolutely no idea what the ramifications are for that of my life. Because if you have a suffering Messiah, then that means something for us. We often talk of of second touches. You know that God, I want to, I want Him to come again. I want Him to, I want to feel Him. I used to have a friend. Uh, well, I still have a friend. He hasn't gone anywhere. Um, and he used to talk about that God used to, like the Spirit, he used to feel the Spirit every single night and he wouldn't stop praying until he felt it. And he would call it like, he said, oh, God's just coming down and giving me a big hug. And there's nothing wrong with that. That'd be awesome if that happened to me every day. But we often associate second touches with spiritual blessings and warm inner experiences. What's in it for me? How can I feel fuzzy? And that's not a bad thing because we need that. We need encouragement from God. We need to know that he cares about us. We need to know that he's intimate with us. But these passages and the ones to come, confronting his disciples with a Christ who must be rejected, who must suffer, who must die and only then will he be raised, speaks of a discipleship, not of power and of glory, but one of lowly service and loss of life. Jesus' way doesn't lead us to chairs of glory by the throne. It leads us to a cross at Skull Place. The goal of the second touch isn't to have warm and fuzzies. The goal of the second touch is to start seeing things clearly. And then to see things clearly is to see all things clearly. Who is God? Who are we? Are the people, the tragedy of life, the wonders of life? And this second touch... can be quite painful for comfortable Christians who are complacent in church, who live in affluent societies, because that's us. Jesus gives us apt description of what it means to be his disciple. Chapter 8. From verse 34. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, 
Let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who will lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of then the Son of Man will be ashamed will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Chapter nine verse thirty five. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Chapter ten verse forty three forty four. But it is not so much it is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be a slave of all. Jesus asks us to be something that our humanity is completely uncomfortable with. He asks us to lay it down and put it aside because that's what he did. But the prayer of of myself, and I hope that the prayer of you, is that Jesus, who is the only one who can do it, that this second touch of his will enable your ears to be opened and your eyes to be opened so you can see and so you can hear. Even if it comes in stages, that one day, that you and I will be able to confess that Christ is the Son of God and that his gospel is the good news. Um, I'm going to... So I'm done with my notes there, but I feel compelled to pray. And what I am going to pray for is that those people who want to have their eyes opened and their ears opened so they can see and hear that God starts to work on you and in your life. However, most often when we pray, especially at the end of a service, we dim the lights, we bow our heads and we close our eyes. But I actually want to do this with eyes open. It's time we started standing up. It's time we started to be more bold. So I'm asking those of you with everyone's eyes open, with everyone looking around, no secrecy, no privacy, out in the open, those of you who want prayer for your eyes to be opened and for your ears to be open so you can see and hear to stand up. Let God work on you. Heavenly Father, you reign. Heavenly Father, 
I pray that you speak. I pray for your presence. I pray that every eye and every ear of those who seek you, that you begin to work on them, that you begin to speak to them, that you begin to challenge them, that you begin to make them more bold. Father, I pray that these people who are standing, who aren't afraid, Father, I pray that you touch them. I pray that you help them to understand what it means to be your disciple. That it is not a place of privilege, but it is a place of servanthood. That it is not a place of power, but it is a place of slavery. Slavery to you, Lord slavery to your word slavery to your will Father I thank you that you make these people bold enough to stand up in the midst of who you are and to search you more to seek you more Father I thank you for your presence here I thank you that as you minister to these people my brothers and sisters in Christ that you give them eyes to see and that you give them ears to hear who you are